Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, March 8th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim starts a new series about how the Tower of Terror became the first ride at a Disney theme park, which could be reprogrammed to have new drop sequences. I'm hoping it involves a Commodore 64 and a tape recorder. Let's get started by bringing in the man who wants to know how the camera person for Finding Nemo held their breath for that long. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Particulate matter, Len. Particulate matter. (laughs) Filtration is the key. Filtration is the key. I did the press day for Finding Dory, but to listen to the tech people talk about how water in the ocean looks a certain way, whereas the water at the aquarium looked a certain way, and how each of them had different levels of particulate matter. Particulate matter, yeah, yeah. Biomass is uh, is, com- is complex, right? Oh, very much so. But it, what's also complicating is nodding and smiling after your brain has gone dead when somebody's talked to you for 20 minutes about particulate matter. And it's like, can we go back to talking about the cute fish now? <laughs> so what's it like working with Ellen? Yeah. There we go. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Kelsey. Bethdian, Eugene PDD, JC LaRue 8, Sniffsnaff, and Chad D. And longtime subscribers AMK1173, Flynn72, JC King MD, JA Metzger, Scott Video, and Linder. Jim, these folks have earned the coveted Safe Skipper Award given out to those boat captains who bring back 1,000 jungle cruises without an accident. And that works out to almost half. Of all their cruises, so you know these folks are total professionals. True story. Wow. Okay. How was that not a joke on the Jungle Cruise? I don't know. I remember talking with a Jungle Cruise boat driver who, everybody on board was either a cast member or a family member. At one point in the attraction, you can actually get off. And what he did, he parked the boat, got everybody off, and brought back a perfectly empty boat. <laughs> it was just one of these things. Where are they? Where are who? Oh, yeah. There, there was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Cause much commotion. All right. All right, Jim. Let's do the news. Mm-hmm. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news this week, Universal announced that Epic Universe construction is back on and i think this caught a lot of people by surprise jim Mm. what's your take on this i did want to talk with you about this because i wondered if you saw the thing in the trades last week about how disney has somehow managed over the past year to reposition itself as a tech company the way the entertainment press because of the huge success of of disney plus and the like uh in fact just yesterday the the announcement of how 20% 20% of the Disney stores around the country, upwards of they're 60. They're closing. They're going online. Yeah. They're going to go to online retail. It's e-commerce. You know, the whole notion yeah. of that under JPEG, it's like, look, we're a tech company now that, oh, by the way, we sell vacations and we have resorts. Whereas this came down from on high. What was interesting about this announcement is it came from Comcast, not Universal Resorts. I mean, they they filter the news out, but this this came down from Comcast. They're like, okay, we're serious. We're getting back to work on our fourth theme park in Florida. 
the really big ambitious one. And mm -hmm. for me, what was fascinating was to watch all the people who in themed entertainment who have been laid off, who are just sort of like this huge sigh of relief went out like, oh my God, we're going to get back to work. Yeah. Light at the end of the tunnel type stuff. Yeah. But what's just kind of interesting is to just look at this two very different business plans. Here you have Universal that, you know, we're going to be putting steel and concrete in the ground. Mm -hmm. And here was Bob Chapek earlier this week, literally talking about, well, you know, that whole theatrical release thing we used to do. <laughs> Maybe we're not going to do that quite as often as we used to. Oh, going uh, direct to streaming? Well, some. I mean, Chapek was, was rather elusive about it, but sort of alluded to the fact that, yeah, the blockbusters, the thing you want to see on big screen, the, the Marvel superhero films and the like, those will definitely be in theaters, whereas uh, and some other stuff, you know, mostly going over to Disney+. Plus. Oh, sort of like the secondary animated features, the... Uh, there we go. You know, there we go. Uh, the, the sequels mm -hmm. and things like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Car 6. <laughs> <laughs> which you know, used to go to the Disney store and buy the toys. And now yeah. you'll do that online. So interesting. Mm -hmm. The other big thing, uh, Epcot's flower and garden uh, festival began. This is running, I think it's the longest flower and garden festival uh, ever. It'll run through what, like June, late June, early July, something like that, Jim. To give you some idea of the Disney universal turf, the big news yesterday, you know, one was, that Epic Universe is, is going to begin construction. And there was a new background loop of, of music at the entrance at Epcot. And at Epcot, right. And the weird part of it was if you went to the Disney fan pages, that was what they were talking about. It's like, oh, my God, look at the new lighting scheme and look at the background music. And it's like, did you notice the guys down the street are building a billion-dollar theme park? Oh, look at the lights and the music. Oh, you yeah. know, just sort of like. Wow, really? I uh, I saw it, and I, uh, I I mean, it's nice that Epcot's getting new background music, but mm. yeah, it doesn't really compare to. I think uh, Epic Universe, what the budget's two point three billion. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot. That's well, a lot of money. I've heard from friends at Universal to the effect of, yeah, we'll be rolling out the new plan soon, which means that some of the early art that we saw, and I mean, it, it's classic theme park. You see the first piece of concept art, and the finished park is is decidedly different. And, sure. you know, there have been certain things that have impacted the plans for Epic Universe. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing any uh, any uh, roller coasters based around um, uncontained viruses probably got mixed. <laughs> Yes, and, and, and also certain lands of the park that had something to do with Johnny Depp and Fantastic Beasts, yeah. but we'll yeah. get that out at another time. Barney's Friendly Face Masks is now back <laughs> on. All right. Sure. There we go. All right, uh, Jim, we uh, got a new survey from Kathy from Disney about a new on-ride photo feature. So this is interesting. The, uh, the email starts uh, with this. You've been selected to pilot our attraction photo review feature. With this pilot, we hope to make your attraction photo experience more convenient by presenting you with photos that may include you or your party. And so uh, so it shows uh, a couple of photos of, I guess I'm, I'm assuming it's, it's Kathy's family, on Expedition Everest. Mm -hmm. Imagine that they're trying to replicate the post-ride photo mm -hmm. experience, but on your phone. So in this case, there were a couple of different images that Kathy could select, mm -hmm. and Disney's walking Kathy through the process of selecting the photos to see whether the process on her phone is better or worse than the process of doing it at, you know, after, at the end of the ride. Mm -hmm. So here it says, um, you know, please select uh, the photos you want added to your gallery. 
Interestingly, once you add photos, you won't be able to view the unselected images again. So that part of it, where you get one shot at picking your photo, that's going to be exactly like the on-ride stuff, which is super interesting. Mm -hmm. And then once Kathy selected the photo, there were questions around the ease of use. Mm -hmm. So first question was, did you actually receive photos of yourself on the ride? Which I guess is an important question when you're trying to sell them. Mm -hmm. How easy was it for you to use this photo review process? How does it compare to the photo preview walls found at the exits of select attractions? And then what other feedback do you have? So it looks like Disney's trying to add this sell a photo feature within my Disney experience now. Is that, is that your take on this, Jim? Yeah, but at the same time, it, it, it's also accepting the reality of, of, of how we live our lives these days. Again, in fact, it was so funny. The other day, we were cleaning here at the house, and Nancy dug out mm -hmm. this wonderful camera that she bought me like five or seven years ago. And Three megapixels. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. And, and just and the notion of I can't tell you the last time I used this actual camera yeah, to take photos camera. on vacation. So the whole notion of here is Disney with, you know, it's post-ride photos trying to, okay. So Move everything onto the app. Yeah. It, on yeah, phone. yeah. So. Um, Super interesting. Mm -hmm. And it goes, it ties into the thing you said about, you know, Disney wanting to be a tech company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to a listener questions, Jim. This one from Chris Cox, mm -hmm. who the BBC says does mind boggling magic. True story. Uh, so he writes in and says, hi, Jim and Len. I suspect this will be a magic eight ball says come back later answer. <laughs> but we're planning a trip to Walt Disney World for late spring 2022. I see that hotels are now available and I'm still waiting on UK to US flight schedules, but do you have any insight as to whether Disney will be putting deals back in place, such as free nights, longer park tickets, dining plans, or so on for 2022? I know that it's the 50th anniversary celebration and there's a strong likelihood that everyone from 2020 and 2021 who cancel trips will be wanting to visit, which makes me think maybe there won't be offers. Um, but I'd like to know your thoughts. And then Chris closes with, it's 11 a.m. here, so time for 11s. <laughs> Don't get me started, Chris. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's an interesting um, question for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One is, um, you know, Disney's definitely going to be doing their promotions. And, you know, right now the occupancy at some hotels is, is relatively high. Like the values of the moderates, relatively high mm -hmm. compared to what you'd think. But the deluxes are still relatively low. But keep in mind, uh, Chris, that by the time that you visit, Disney should have all of its resorts open again, right? It has lots of unsold hotel rooms. And not only that, but the Orlando area will have lots of unsold hotel rooms. And so Disney is going to be competing with that. Mm -hmm. um, so for that reason, I do think that we'll see deals back in place uh, around your visit. You know, maybe not every night. Mm -hmm. It depends on when you go in spring. Like if you're going, you know, the week before or the week after Easter, you know, maybe not great deals. But there's so much capacity in Orlando that the closer things get back to pre-pandemic, the more likely we are to see sales. That's my opinion. My advice is listen to Mr. Testa. When you think about how so many people are are waiting right now, even for a hint of normalcy to get back to business. Oh, yeah. That's Disney's fear is looking over its shoulder and having all of the hotels on 192 and on a national drive, just not at fire sale places, literally burned to the ground prices. You know, just please yeah. show up. Don't forget too, there's Disney's extended its on-site benefits to so many hotels. That, mm. I mean, the Disney Springs hotels, yeah. you know, the Four Seasons, um, you know, the Swan, the Dolphin, the Swan Reserve. I and mean, we've got something like at full capacity, like 36,000 or more 
hotel rooms that they need to be pretty close to full, mm-hmm. you know, every night to hit their pre-pandemic numbers. And that's, that's going to require some discounting, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Fair enough. Jim Rich F writes in with a question uh, primarily for you. Um, Hi, guys. Uh, just made my first trip to Disney in three years. And typically, every trip I pick up a beer and or wine glass to use during my stay. I've been to all four parks and Disney Springs, but the only place I found any glassware has been the Italy Pavilion. And it's just mugs, water bottles, and Starbucks cups everywhere else. Disney used to offer unique glass designs, and now nothing. What gives? Have you seen the the most recent set of photos that Derek Bergen put up from the Disney outlet about all of the Disney Halloween 2020 mugs? Yeah. (laughs) Right now, Rich, what we're dealing with is a company that stopped on the brakes big time on the merch side of things for the very reason that, that they have warehouses full of inventory. In fact, it's what's been fascinating. We have the Disney store outlet here at the, the Merrimack outlets in New Hampshire. And I was recently there, Lennon. I could have wardrobed myself from socks to the top of my head with Disneyland 2020 merch. They sent sweatshirts, t-shirts, socks. Did they really? Disneyland 2020 go, went to the outlets? Yes. In, in New Hampshire? In New Hampshire. The one thing I caved on was there was a, a ceramic mug that started off life at like $19 and had been priced down to three. And it's just like, okay, you know, I'll have something with the year that never was at a, a Disneyland here at the house. But because of what happened, they just stomped on the brakes. And with the 50th anniversary, they were anticipating that they would uh, need all of this merch for all of these people who were coming for this yeah. once-in-a-lifetime event. And, you know, a lot of that is still being held back. So there's this weird lag right now. But at the same time, you know, that these are the times where the designs for 2022 and 2023 are being discussed. And from what I'm hearing on the merch side, it's like, no, we're going with very small orders. We're going with very generic designs until we're absolutely sure that everybody's coming back and that the the normal merchandise purchasing patterns have reemerged and are strong. Right. And, and for a lot of that stuff, too, like for mugs and for glasses, mm-hmm. even if Disney wanted to buy them, the supply chains weren't there, right? Everyone was staying home. So, yeah. you know, there, there were no factories producing mm-hmm. the glasses yeah. or the mugs mm-hmm. and there were no ships running from, you know, wherever those things were built to yeah. into the West Coast. And there were no people working at the ports yeah. and, and so on. And, you know, so that's the real terror with the folks who ordered all of the 50th stuff. Oh, supply chain stuff. Yeah. Oh. Like how long. Yeah. 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 <laughs> when is that showing up? Because I don't need it in 2022. I need it for 2021. And please, please. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff around, around supply chain, you know, supply chains are hard to manage. Yeah under you know, the best of conditions. But mm-hmm. now where it's like, you don't know whether the latest strain of the virus is going to knock your schedule back by three weeks or three months. Yep. And for seasonal stuff, mm-hmm. you know, my sense is that Christmas stuff tends to sell better like October to December yeah. than it does January to March. Yeah, yeah. That's that's when it begins as traditional March to the outlet. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. All right, uh, Jim. Heather writes in with this. We're planning a trip to Universal in May. Can you make outdoor dining recommendations for Universal as you did for Disney a few weeks back? I saw the article touring plans ran back in October for the Universal Parks, but what about the resorts in CityWalk? I'm a vegetarian and prefer to eat vegan when I can, so bonus points for places with good plant-based options. Mm. All right, Heather, so for this, 
I looked at the touring planes dining surveys we've got from Universal for the last six months. Mm -hmm. So it would be current. And then I cross-checked it with each restaurant's menus to make sure that there were vegan and vegetarian options available. So at CityWalk, um, let me give you three options. The highest rated restaurant at CityWalk is Toothsome's Chocolate Emporium, which has a 92% thumbs up rating from our readers, plus outdoor seating. Looks like there are uh, tons of vegetarian options available there, and lots of them can be done vegan as well. So on that menu that I was looking at, um, you've got a couple of things. You've got bruschetta with avocado, which is sort of like a standard appetizer. You've got fried zucchini, which can be done with or without cheese, I guess, to keep it vegan. Uh, a few things like that. You've got salads, which I, I hate to recommend to vegetarians and vegans because that tends to be the default choice for things. They do have an interesting vegetable press, which is a sandwich uh, of roasted vegetables, portobello mushrooms, arugula pesto, gruyere, which again, you can take it off and make it vegan, and dill plus cranberry herb bread. And that's interesting because you've got some texture to that. Roasted vegetables provide sort of like an earthy flavor. So that seems like it's not bad. There's also pasta, but again, you, pasta comes up in a lot of places and I actually have a better pasta recommendation coming up too. And then, you know, you can do like for breakfast, if you wanted to go there for breakfast, you could do things like waffles or French toast if you wanted to do the eggs. Mm -hmm. So that's one option for that. I'm not a huge fan of Toothsome's. Mm. I think it's just okay. I think the uh, the problem that Toothsome's... Jimmy, have you eaten there? Yeah, I, I find it very busy and not as in it's a busy restaurant as in it's not a great... I mean, I, when I go out to eat, I, I want to be able to talk with people and, and find yeah. out. And, and the fact that it's just not a great conducive to conversation... Plus, it, it's got kind of that cheesecake factory menu where it's... That's a thing. The menu, anytime you see a menu that's like 30 pages long, yeah. like there, there are three things on here that you can do well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's that's my... So Toothsome is, high, is the highest rate thing. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, if you want one of the shakes, mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, my pick would be the second highest rated restaurant mm -hmm. in City Walk, which is Antajitos, mm -hmm. the Mexican place. And there you've got a ton of options. And the thing that I like about... Um, Mexican too here, Go, going back to what I had said about, you know, salads, like Laurel's vegan. And so whenever, you know, we go out, if there's nothing on the menu, she typically sticks to, you know, salads or hummus or things like that. But the thing I like about Antojitos is you can make Mexican food vegan and vegetarian friendly and still get tons of flavor and tons of texture. So there, I would recommend like the tableside guacamole. Oh, yeah, I, has, I was about to say we. Yeah, that's know, amazing. There, so. that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. They have again soup salad sandwiches, which are fine, but they do a vegetarian enchilada with sweet potatoes, green and red peppers, black beans, jackfruit, kale, and nopales, which are cactus leaves, vegan cheese, and ranchero sauce, and that is super interesting. So nopales are um, a very sort of herbaceous flavor. For me, people like it or don't, so I'd be interested in, in her take on that. Uh, that's an option. They can do um, vegetarian fajitas, obviously tons of vegetarian tacos as well. They do a sweet potato uh, taco with almond chili salsa, fried corn, vegan cheese, and scallions. And I've had that. And the interesting thing about that, so sweet potato obviously is sweet, but the chili salsa provides heat and the scallions provide like a brightness to the flavor. Mm -hmm. So you've got, um, you've got some texture. You've got some sweet, you've got some hot, and you've got some brightness. I really like that. So if I was going to pick one thing to eat at Antojitos, it would probably be the sweet potato tacos. That would be my uh, my choice over there. 
for Heather. The other thing you have to recommend in CityWalk, Voodoo Donuts, right? There's nothing wrong with Voodoo Donuts. I'm, you've, you've, you've eaten there, right, Jim? Oh, yeah. I will throw myself on that grenade. Yeah. Uh, amazing place. You know, every time I'm at Universal, I would take six, six to home to go. Mm. And they do things like, you know, uh, donuts with Captain Crunch on it and sort of like all cereal decorations. For me, my favorite donut there is the Grape Ape. It's a yeast donut with vanilla frosting, grape dust. I have no idea how they make grape dust, whatever, um, and lavender sprinkles. But it's very tart, mm-hmm. and it goes really well to cut the sweetness of the vanilla frosting and the donut itself. That's $2.20. Can't beat it. My favorite donut over there. Um, a couple of other options. The kitchen over at Hard Rock Hotel has outdoor seating and does a ton of vegetarian and vegan things. They do a brunch as well. That is very highly rated. And I know I said that uh, you know, Toothsome uh, does pastas, but actually Biche at the Portofino, I don't know if they're doing takeout or not. I couldn't get that confirmed because we're recording the show early and I mm-hmm. couldn't call. But Biche does a really good gnocchi mm-hmm. that I would recommend if you're in the mood for Italian and vegan or vegetarian. So those would be my those would be my five choices. One other thing, uh, and again, this is one of my favorite things about the Portofino. And I'm I, I again I know so much live entertainment has been discontinued, and I'm dearly hoping that this somehow survived the cuts. But have you ever been over at the Portofino at about seven o'clock at night and they throw open, you know, if you're seated outside and, you know, having your dinner. Uh, I know where you're going with this, Jim. Go ahead. The door's open and then suddenly there's a person standing on the balcony and they have a music system behind them and they begin singing opera live. Oh, Jim, with enough wine at Beach, I will sing back. What are you talking about? <laughs> what? <laughs> the first time I saw this, I'm like, clearly this is participatory entertainment, right? <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be engaged here. There we go. And it's just like, are you kidding? It's a, damn it. Where's my spear, my breastplate and my Viking helmet? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that was the first time I was at. It, that's exactly how it unfolded. The first mm-hmm. time I was at Portofino, I was staying yep. there, mm-hmm. and I love, I love the bathrooms at Portofino. Mm-hmm. I think the showers there mm-hmm. are basically God's plumbing. It's the way that showers. <laughs> there's enough water pressure there to peel paint off of cars. Okay, it's yep. it's exactly the way a shower should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I was walking around at night. I, had, I think Laurel and I went to Beach. Eh? Mm-hmm. You know, we're walking around commenting on how it sort of looks like Portofino, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you squint. And then, yeah, to your point, you know, people started coming out and singing. I'm like, and for like 10 seconds, mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, these are the most talented guests <laughs> I have ever seen in my entire life. Like, what? And then, you know, by the third one, I'm like, oh, it's an act. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, like okay, got it, got it. But yeah, it's, it was a, it's just it's such a wonderful thing to stumble upon, and then if you're you're staying at Universal, it just becomes the thing. You get your your glass yeah, you of go out for it. yeah, you get your glass of wine, you sit, and it just sort of like it is so. After particularly a day at a theme park, it is so ridiculously relaxing and civilized. Yeah. it's just ah, just wonderful. Yeah, you wonderful. go outside, you grab a grab a glass of wine, you walk around, you listen. It's great. There you go. So yeah, I can't wait for that to come back. That'll mm-hmm. be great. Uh, Jim, finally, Jacob writes in with an update on our increasingly quixotic attempt mm-hmm. to classify the names of British meals with this. Uh, just to keep you in the loop on this crucial field, I shared the chart with my British friends and received a bafflingly complex response. Apparently, the names for meals depend not just on class and geography, but sometimes even on whether you're eating out 
or at home. So let me just pause here and say, Jim, I'm beginning to understand why the colonists left England. They were starving because no one knew when the restaurants were open. That's what I'm getting out of all of this. And then so Jacob continues, then my American friends chipped in. Mm -hmm. Two Midwesterners told me that Sunday dinner was a big midday meal. That's true. Two New Englanders claim the evening meal is dinner if you have company, but supper otherwise. Jim? All I can think of right now is that the, the first recorded meal of, from people from England in North America actually took place on Corn Hill in Massachusetts. And in fact, the reason it's called Corn Hill is basically two of the people from the Mayflower were wandering and found a basket of corn that the, the Native Americans had left for planting in the next year. And they're like, yoink, this is ours, and took it back to the boat <laughs> and then ate it. So the, the, the first you know official meal from, from folks who came over in the Mayflower was stolen. So I was just wondering what time they ate the corn, Jim, because wow. that's going to make all the difference when we to document this. <laughs> they're in North America. There are no clocks at there. Well, the, chron the chronometer says that... <laughs> Sun's behind the yard, iron makes it, well, we can drink and eat the corn. I, uh, I started sketching out the whole British uh, meal thing, and it became a four-dimensional graph, and I gave up. So <sighs> I, I, need to, I need a drink, and then I'll, I'll try it again. Well, anyway. Well, let me know what time you're drinking. <laughs> All right, those were our listener questions. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim talks about how a cutting-edge thrill ride, which opened at Magic Mountain back in 1982, led to the development of Disney's Tower of Terror. So reach over to your left the safety strap and insert it in the buckle on your right and give the yellow tab a good firm hold and we'll be right back tower of terror seems like we're not going to begin with the beginning of the tower of terror right there's there's some history here we talked just at the start of the show about how Disney and Universal are in competition in the Central Florida market. But it's also important to remember that there were other folks, especially in the, the mid-70s into the early 80s, that Disney was constantly looking over its shoulder to see what was going on. And there was Knott's Berry Farm, but there was also Magic Mountain in Valencia, California. This would have been June of 1982. Intamin introduced a brand new ride that summer at Magic Mountain Freefall. Now, it's been 15 years since Freefall last operated on a regular basis at that theme park. And that was largely because the manufacturers stopped making replacement parts. That will put a damper on it, yeah. It will. But anyway, they, they wound up dismantling the, the attraction in February of 2008. And the spot where it, it once stood still stands empty in that theme park. But when Freefall first began operation, it caused a sensation in theme park circles. So four guests at a time are strapped into a cage-like ride system, which is then pulled backwards into this steel drop tower. Ride vehicle is then zoomed to the top of the drop tower, which in the case of Magic Mountain's Freefall, it's a whopping 87 feet. <laughs> okay, all right. All right, the ride vehicle would then slide out to the edge of the drop tower and then drop, and then plummet straight down to the bottom at 55 miles an hour. The next thing you know, because it's got an L-shaped track, the riders are flat on their backs, riding out the momentum. And then, you know, once it stops, it gets pulled back into the station. Oh, so the L-shape is the thing that makes the ride mechanics easier because it would be very difficult to stop. <laughs> well, well, that Just, and getting the, the riders out with a spatula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do it mechanically, right? Mm -hmm. Other ways, right? If, you, if they were just stopping, dropping straight down, mm -hmm. there would be a lot more physics involved in stopping 
a ride vehicle, right? But with an L-shaped, it's sort of a gradual curve and a slowdown. Okay, fair There enough. were so many aspects of this, from the first you're loaded and then you're pulled backwards into the tower that's disconcerting, and then you zoom to the top, and then yeah. the slow creep out to the actual drop point, and then not knowing when the drop will actually happen. I mean, it's a ridiculously low-capacity ride. Yeah, four people at a time? Four people at a time. So how long, I mean, the, the drop is pretty quick, right? I'm assuming the lift is pretty quick. Yeah. But what are they, what are they getting? Uh, let's say it's, did, did, how, many, how many cages did they operate at a time? With one. Like more than one? One. You know. Uh, one. Yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. So the hourly capacity here is like 240 people. If that. You know, and, and so <laughs> people would stand. It's basically a water slide at that point. There you go. But people would stand okay. in a three and four hour long line just to experience this thing. Disney had been in the thrill ride business since, what, June of 59. That's when Matterhorn Bobsleds yeah. opened. But it hadn't really gotten serious about thrill rides to the mid-1970s. I mean, Space Mountain opens at Walt Disney World in January of 75 for literally just five months. They were the talk of the theme park industry because, ooh, a roller coaster in the dark and space-themed. And But then in May of that year, Magic Mountain introduces the first modern coaster to feature a vertical loop, the Great American Revolution. And Disney has five months of the spotlight, and then bang, it's Magic Mountain again. So Disney decides the way we reclaim the high ground is we get into the thrill ride business. We follow up Space Mountain with another thrill ride. Only we'll do a coaster just like Magic Mountain, just like Knott's. Only we're going to lean heavily into the story aspect of it. So we're going to do... Right. It's the thing that makes them different, yeah. There we go. September of 79, we get big Thunder Mountain Railway. So summer of 82, the Imagineers, you know, go over repeatedly to Magic Mountain and stand in a three and four hour line. And, you know, they get off it and it's like, it's simple, but man, is this effective. And we have to do something with this at the Disney parks. But it's like, what kind of a story can you tell with Freefall? And what park's going to get this attraction? Because if we stop here for a second... And think mm-hmm. about the early 1980s. Okay. Walt Disney World's version of Big Thunder Mountain had just opened in September of 1980. Uh, so okay. that park didn't need a new thrill ride to drive attendance for at least three to five years. Okay. Epcot Center is just nearing completion of construction. And given that that originally budgeted for 400, 400 million park is now 200% over budget, there's just no way you could justify, and let's build a new thrill ride, you know, a free fall right yeah, there. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Tokyo, also nearing completion during the same window of time. But remember, the Oriental Land Company folks, they loved clones. They wanted proven rides from Disneyland and Walt Disney World. The only new ride they built at that park was Meet the World, uh, the thing that was supposed to go into Epcot. I was going to say, even though it was supposed to go into Epcot, it wasn't completely right. Yeah, yeah. So, right. you know, there was just no way they were going to get behind funding, you know, a brand new attraction. And Disneyland Park, the, the original in California, they were just completing their redo of Fantasyland, which was supposed to open in, in phases in 83 and 84. So this left the European Park. At this point, Len, they're still haven't decided, are we building in France? Are we building in Spain? All right, so it's really early on in the concept. Well, yeah, but but at the same time, they are definitely working on this thing. In fact, Eisner signs the letter of intent with the French government in December of 85. I mean, 15 months after he's in the door, they've, they've signed the letter of intent. But that shows you how far along the development is at this point. And Disney, especially during this period of time in its history, is very uncomfortable with the notion of somebody saying, hey, you stole that idea, or hey, you copied that from Magic Mountain. With the Imagineers, it's like, this is freefall. 
But what are we going to do with Freefall that makes our Freefall ride different from Magic Mountain's Freefall? And so what the idea they came up with, the first idea was Geyser Mountain. By the way, this was during this period of time at Disney where if you said, I want to do a thrill ride, and they went, okay, so how does it fit into the Disneyland mountain range? You know, that's a Matterhorn Mountain, Space Mountain, Big right. Thunder Mountain. Uh, this is even why, you got to remember, here's Tony Baxter. It's the summer of 83, and he walks in. He's like, hey, I figured out what to do with those American Sings figures and that flume ride thing that Dick Nudis wants. And I, I've got a concept for a ride called zippity Doodah River Run. And they're like, can you call it Splash Mountain? Because <laughs> we live in Lake Mountains. I'm frankly amazed that Seven Dwarfs Mine Train doesn't have the word mountain in it. <laughs> now that you mentioned that. It, it, really, it's every, t- every time I type it out, I'm like, yep. this is not, it doesn't have mountain in it. And that's kind of amazing. There's actually that thing the Magic Mirror says in the original Snow White, you know, beyond the seven hills and the veil. You know, I mean, it, it, they, there's language there. You know, they, it could have been Seven Dwarf Hill, which I, I actually, I met him at a family reunion once, but that's another storyline. <laughs> All right. So anyway, free fall attraction, not a naked copy of Magic Mountain's Thorough Ride. So here we go, Geyser Mountain. So the gimmick here, though, Len, is instead of falling off of a drop tower, you get blown up. Okay. Okay, so picture this. You've got the Euro Disney version of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad on that island in the middle of the, the rivers of yep. the far west. Yep. To your left, you have Phantom Manor. Uh, yep. Island in the middle, and then bookending it on the right, you've got this weird, tall, thin, vaguely industrial-looking structure. And out in front of this building, you've got all sorts of weird mining equipment. So as we start into the queue of Geyser Mountain, we learn this is the laboratory workshop of the eccentric inventor who actually built all of the mining equipment that was then used to dig the tunnels on Big Thunder Mountain. Okay. All right. So, you know, as we enter his workshop, we discovered that this inventor took all of the money that he made off of his share of the Big Thunder Mountain gold and plowed it into his next big invention, which was going to try to tap into superheated geothermal steam and then produce electricity for all the folks living in and around Frontierland. That's actually not a bad story. All right. Okay. Okay. Now, mind you, he hasn't perfected things yet. We can tell that by the electric lights in the queue that keep getting brighter and dimmer. But today's the big day. Today, this is when his latest and greatest invention supposedly officially comes online. And that's why we're there. We're there for the demo. But in order to see his latest and greatest, we first have to climb aboard an industrial elevator, which then takes us down into the depths. And what's kind of cool about this is that this is the Imagineers who have invented the hydrolator effect. Oh, okay. All right. So you're you're descending in air quotes. And what's kind of interesting is that Disney never used this effect, but years later, if you've ever been on Harry Potter and the Escape to Gringotts, that moment in the queue yeah. where you get aboard the elevator and you seemingly go down for miles, yep. this is that effect. This is what they were going to do. But as you're descending, the door opens at several different levels. And what was kind of cool is the way they got away with this effect is... One time a door would open directly in front of you, one time a door would open to your left, another time a door would open to your right. So, for example, you know, at one point the door opens and you're looking out on this recreation of Disneyland's fabled rainbow caverns from the, the, the old mine train. Every, every time you say rainbow caverns, yeah. I think of Chris Diamonopoulos singing <laughs> as Mickey Mouse singing, the rainbow caverns. <laughs> <laughs> in the Mickey Mouse short. It's yes, in my head. Yes. It's just so funny. Uh, yeah, right. I love Chris. <laughs> All right, but that's okay. But that's okay. Interesting effect. 
the story's there. All right, this makes sense. All right, go ahead. We go ahead. finally reach the very bottom of the shaft. And, uh, you know, we were supposed to watch his Blaze and Grace adventure get switched on, but of course, something goes horribly wrong. Geothermal pressure is far too great for the electrical generating equipment. Our industrial elevator is sent back to the surface at emergency speed because they get him out of here, get him out of here. But the pressure of the escaping steam is too great. It actually sends us zooming by the offload load station. And we now blast up into this tall, thin structure. And in fact, at one point, we hear cracking and smashing wood. And we're, we're now looking out through what supposedly is the roof that's parted you know, around us. And we have this spectacular view of Euro Disneyland, you know, out in front of us before we then, you know, the steam dissipates and we then drop down into the tower. And only because an emergency brake kicks in at the very last minute, are we not smashed into pulp? And then we come back into the uh, load unload area and get out. And it's like, oh my God, this is terrible. And oh, did you see the gift shop? <laughs> but this was how the Imagineers wanted to wrap a story around the freefall system. This isn't a bad idea, and I've never heard of it before. Yeah, uh, well, uh, and the weird thing is, Len, you can actually go on light now. If you Google Geyser Mountain, you can actually see the tall thing. What's weird is it's as if the Tower of Terror were built by the exact same guys who built Wilderness Lodge. It's mostly made out of wood and logs and, and that sort of thing. Oh. Look at that. I can see it. Yeah. And the same exact thing with the, the tall tower. And the, the weird thing of it is it was going to be able to expand on the Big Thunder Mountain mythology and did something entirely different from what Magic Mountain had done with this very same ride technology. And the best part was, at least as far as the Imagineers were concerned, it's like, look, we already have Big Thunders at Disneyland. We already have one at Walt Disney World. We're going to build yeah. one at Tokyo. We can now expand the footprint of this side of the park by building, you know, clones of Geyser Mountain next to these. And it will have a thrill ride complex. We'll have a place where people can get off the big Thunder Mountain ride. And it's like, hey, you want to go go experience that thing that was supposedly by the guy who dug the tunnels? It's like, sure, let's go over there. Oh, that yeah, interesting sort of a set of tie-ins. Boy, looking at the concept art for this, you can see how they got a uh, hotel out of it. Yep, yep. Interesting. If you look at the top of the building... And remember the giant motors that have to power right. this thing. You you have the same sort of bulgy structure at the top. You've got the frontier land guys who are working on Euro Disney. They propose this, but then it's like they well wait a minute. Like they, they, we have to listen to the Discovery Land guys. They also have an idea they want to do with Freefall, which we'll get to with the next installment of this Disney oh, series. You tease, you tease, what Jimmy. Can I tease. tell you, bring me a grape ape donut and we'll talk. Len. Maybe I'll talk. <laughs> all right. That's a great story. Ah, oh, you can totally see mm -hmm. how this would have worked too. Yeah. And boy, you're right. It would have completely fit in with the Frontierland aesthetic because mm -hmm. it looks like it's, t I mean, it wouldn't be real wood, but it would be, it looks like real wood. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, nice. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Good job, Jim. I try. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the single best podcast episode we've ever done. We present the earliest known version of Epcot's American Adventure script with real actors, music, and special effects. On next week's show, Jim will continue the story of the Tower of Terror. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenittouringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be performing Clifton Chenier's Zydeco Sans Pas Salé and other classics 
as part of the Lebeau Zedeco Festival on Saturday, July 3rd from noon to 10 p.m. at the Immaculate Conception Church in beautiful downtown Lebeau, Louisiana. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.